Hi, this is Ron Hogan, and you're listening to Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast where I talk with memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoirs. My guest today is Daniel Smith, and we're going to be talking about his book, Monkey Mind, A Memoir of Anxiety, which is published by Simon & Schuster. Hi, Daniel. Hi. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Feeling a little bit anxious, but not, not terribly anxious. It's actually... When I was running through questions that I was going to ask you about this book, it, it occurred to me, for somebody who suffers from lifelong anxiety, what is a media tour like? Well, there hasn't been much of a tour, but the, the interviews and the appearances have actually been not terribly anxiety-provoking at all. In fact, going in front of a crowd, the readings in particular, or the public appearances have been great. For the reason that performing in any capacity seems to shut off your anxiety for the duration. Beforehand, I'm capable of horrible and intense intestinal distress. And afterwards, I'm capable of waking up at three in the morning, worrying about what I said. Should I have said something different? Is what I said stupid? Ought to I have said this better? Did I offend anyone? But while I'm in the middle of it, it's great. It's like um, everything shuts off. You're in the present moment. And since anxiety is so much related to shoulds, ought to have been, the past and the future, it's great. It's like this wonderful this wonderful drug being able to talk extemporaneously. It actually kind of points towards something that you talk about in the book, um, you know, a therapy technique that your mother underwent uh, for her anxiety, which was essentially to, you know, confront yourself with the thing that makes you anxious and and just face it. Oh, yeah, the exposure. The exposure. Like, well, there's an exposure therapy. I mean, I'm not a clinician. So there are probably far more techniques and disciplines in the psychotherapeutic realm than I know. The therapy that I went through that, that is very useful is, is a cognitive behavior therapy, which is, of course, one of the most prevalent and popular forms of psychotherapy in the world now. And I had had lots of therapy before I met this one therapist who really started helping me. But most of the therapy I'd had had that old psychotherapeutic, psychoanalytic camp of just sit down and talk it out. So for 45, 50 minutes, you just spew. And it was very undisciplined. There was no real technique or method to it. Whereas this first therapist I had who really changed things for me, his name was Brian. And I didn't know what he was doing until later on. Basically would ask me to confront my own thoughts, to identify the thoughts that were going through my head. I'm not sure if this is what you were referring to or not. Confront my own thoughts, identify them, and then apply logic to them. Sort of test them. Reality test. Is it true that if I make a mistake at work, I'm going to be fired and then end up homeless on the streets. Well, it's entirely possible. But what odds would you give something like that? Of a, you know, a, a, a middle-class Jew from Long Island with, with, uh, with a bachelor's degree and, uh, and a good job of that, that one mistake at work leading to that horrible scenario. And once you start to be able to be mindful of those anxiety-producing thoughts and beliefs, you can really start to sort of defang them. And make them less dangerous to you overall. And, and Brian is the the one who also sort of confronted you at one session and said, you know, you, we can vent about this stuff if you want. Yeah. But, you know, do you want to get better? Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's like, I said, aren't we going to talk about my mom? Are we going to talk about my dad? Are we going to talk about my childhood? He said, well, you know, we can if you'd like, but it feels like you're in a, a building that's on fire, right? And I said, yeah, that's exactly what it feels like. And he goes, it feels like you need to get out of the building, right? I said, yeah. He said, so why don't we put the fire out before we bring in the fire marshal and try to figure out what caused the fire? 
and anxiety is, you know, it's an emergency. It feels like an emergency to sit there and in the midst of your horrible anxiety, try to figure out the sources, the origins. It's very impractical. I'm not sure it's practical overall. It's far more practical in, to my mind to learn how to stay in the present moment, to learn how to carve new pathways of thought. Other people might have different experiences, but to me, it's all about that. It's all about working to change the habit. Yeah, to, to cultivate that sort of mindfulness. Yeah. Of, you write about how it did sort of transform the way that you, you, know, you would be looking at online comments about things that you had written. And as they were provoking the anxiety in you, now you were sort of able to look at them and say, like, okay, what just happened? Here? Yeah. But for the be in the beginning, I couldn't go near them. You're referring to the first piece I ever wrote. I was in my early 20s, and I was working at The Atlantic when, they, when that magazine was still in Boston. And at the age of 21 or so, I brought an idea to the editor and said, I'd like to write about electroconvulsive therapy, that electroshock. I had no idea it was still so common and that it was still used so much. He said, that's a great idea, and I went forward with it and spent a year working on this article. And it was this great coup. It was at 23 or something like that. It was going to be published in The Atlantic, a big story. And then it immediately caused this incredible furor. It was a very controversial subject. People who were against electroshock were writing online these horrible comments about me and about the article. And it dis I descended into this state of just absolute horrible and acute anxiety. And Brian would say, all right, I want you to go home and look at those comments online. And I simply could not. It was like he might as well have asked me to you know, walk on a tightrope across the Grand Canyon. I just couldn't do it. Maybe someone could, but I can't. Eventually, I learned how to do that. I learned how to confront the things that actually made me anxious. And and the, the discipline was wonderful because it didn't make the sky fall. It didn't make all my worst nightmares come true. I'm not sure even what my worst nightmare was, that I'd go crazy, probably. Didn't go crazy, and the anxiety subsided. Now, I want to backtrack a little sure. bit here in that, you know, we, we talked about how this occurred when you were working at the Atlantic and you were in the fact checking department and you talk about how fact checking as a profession is not a good fit for, <laughs> for the anxious. Like yeah, that. no, it is not. Um, or necessarily for a writer, I would say the main currency for a fact checker is, is, a, a, is, a, is a perfectionism. You have to be able to be vigilant about every last potential mistake. You have to be anticipating the worst, anticipating things that could go wrong, that someone could object to, that may or may not have been botched by the writer or that changed by the editor. That's the exact habit of thought that, that, that is anxiety, always anticipating what could go wrong. So if you're someone who's prone to anxiety and become a fact checker, you're basically just just throwing more fuel onto the fire of your own neurosis. And I found that this is exactly what happened. It was terrifying to can be confronted with sort of all your fears manifest on this on this galley, set of galley pages, everything underlined. You have to check this, you have to check that. It was like having the contents of my nervous mind dumped onto, you know, a prospective article for a major national magazine. And I write in the book about other other jobs that might be bad ideas for people who suffer from anxiety. And I've sort of, I'm not sure I got it right because I say that things like emergency room technician or, you know, stunt pilot. And yet, if you're in an emergency room 
and you're prone to anxiety, you might not feel anxiety at all during that because like being on stage and like performing, you're in the present moment during that. Being an emergency room surgeon might be the best job. I probably should have done that instead of writing because you're alone in the room and you're writing a book and you're just, it's quiet. You're with your own head. You're in your own head. The job is to get out of your own head if you're anxious. There's a really vivid passage in Monkey Mind where you describe exactly that mental process. You sort of step out of the book for a second and recount your difficulties in writing the passage that you had just written, right, yeah. which is ostensibly, you know, on, on one level, it's a simple autobiographical reflection of a moment between you and your family. But the, in the anxious mind, you, you start obsessing over the exacting description of, of that place and that setting, worrying about whether you've gotten it right or not, and the ways in which that sort of derails your, your mental processes yeah. for the whole day, really. Yeah, yeah, if you allow it to. And I certainly allowed it to then. I mean, writing might very well be the worst choice of profession for someone who's anxious because there's always an opportunity to revise what you've just written, and there's always uncertainty about what comes next. So you, you're you chasing after that that sort of, you know, that what sort of flow moment, that Zen moment where you're writing only what you're writing at, at, at that very present moment. But I find that that's, that's very rare. I love it when it happens, but usually I'm revising in my head and anguishing about what comes next. Plus again, the isolation. The only good thing about being a writer if you're anxious is that you don't have to sweat in front of other people. You can, you can if you're going to panic, if you're going to become drenched in your own sweat and freak out, at least you can do it in privacy and without the risk of humiliation. Which maybe, I, I keep wondering whether that was one of the main reasons I became a writer. Just to avoid that social anxiety, which in an office can be crippling. Right. You, you do, in fact, write about how when you were at the Atlantic, this was not simply a case of your anxiety, you know, to use the metaphor I used before, derailing your mental, your mental processes. There, you know, sweat was the most overt physical manifestation of yeah. this, and it was really bad. It was really bad, yeah. It was just, I mean, I spent a lot of time in the bathroom scrubbing the underarms of my own shirts and just scrubbing them with paper towels to try to get, because they didn't have a hand dryer in there. That would have been too easy. Although even if they had a hand dryer, I would have had to somehow bar the door so that someone didn't come in and find me shirtless trying to, you know, dry up uh, my underarms. Yeah, it was awful. It was really terrible. It was like you, you go in and you, you know, you have a meeting with someone who intimidates you and you start to sweat. And then once you feel that first trickle of sweat tickling your underarm, you get more nervous, which makes you sweat more, which makes you more nervous, and so on and so forth until you're just drenched. And the days go on like that. So yeah, it's it's terrible. I mean, since then, in the last year, since I finished the book, discovered Botox. You can get Botox injections to paralyze your sweat glands. And it's the greatest thing. It's a, now I could be the CEO of a multinational corporation. <laughs> if only I discovered that earlier. Right. And you don't care if your underarms don't, you know, if your underarm skin doesn't move. No, no, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's barely anything. I mean, it's not, a, it's not pleasant to have needles jammed mm -hmm. into your, but they're thin needles and, yeah. and it's the best, and it lasts for six months. You go in, you do it again. It's like the great, it looks really weird when I'm, when I'm like exercising because everything else will be sweating but my underarms. But it's, so it's a little creepy, but, but, uh, oh, it's the best, man. I love it. <laughs> in the writing, 
I'm curious about sort of the the process of trying to write about the very experiences that have driven your anxiety over the course of your life mm -hmm. and sort of the the emotional responses that 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 churns up i mean the mindfulness technique and, and uh, awareness techniques probably help with that but it still must churn up an awful lot in the, in the writing it it actually i don't think it did um, I didn't. I didn't find my that the that the content made me anxious. There was actually the writing about the electroconvulsive therapy article made me anxious, and I wasn't sure why. Whether there was still something unresolved there or something I was still trying to hide from, but I mean, I certainly felt anxiety in the process of writing. But the anxiety that I felt in writing were were writing. It was writing writing anxiety. Am I going to figure out this chapter? Am I going to figure out how to say this well? Am I going to miss my deadline? You know, just the, the usual trying to fill up a blank page anxieties. Maybe the reason the content didn't churn up a great deal is because there's a distancing effect in writing because you are worrying so much about when you're writing a book about the structure and about the form, about the tone, that you have some clinical distance from, from the content itself. But I found the writing neither, neither you know, particularly anxiety-provoking or therapeutic, really, or particularly therapeutic. I didn't. I learned about my anxiety, but I didn't learn anything additional about how to combat it. How to combat it was still the sort of regular old plotting work of of carving out new patterns of thought, uh, and that happens after hours or during lunch breaks. And it seems like this is something that, over the long haul, that you can manage your anxiety, but that it's not, there's not a cure, per se. I don't think that there is. I mean, I've heard some people say that they've, that they, they are no longer, that they are anxiety-free. I'm not sure that anyone is ever really anxiety-free, or even that it's desirable. Anxiety isn't, anxiety is a universal emotion, and a useful one. You, you read about those people who, people who can't feel pain, that they're pain receptors, um, they have some neurological disorder, and how dangerous that is because you touch a hot stove, you don't know it. Well, anxiety is, is to some extent the psychological equivalent of that. You need it to survive. You need to know if there are threats coming your way. And to some extent, it's, it's motivating. Beyond that, of course, it's paralyzing. But in my experience, one can manage anxiety. One can, one can reduce anxiety to the point so that it's no longer having a negative impact, a negative effect, rather, on, on, your, on your everyday life and on your ability to do the things that you want to do and achieve what you want to achieve and love in the way that you should and, and are able to love. But I don't, I don't believe that I'll ever banish my anxiety altogether, nor do I think I really want to. And you, in fact, you mentioned somewhere in the book, and I'm going to be paraphrasing here, but mm -hmm. it's the idea that uh, anxiety is really good at biding its time. Oh, yeah. It can wait you out. Well, it's also always there. The, the old patterns are always always there. If you're someone who's suffered anxiety for a while, then your mind is an anxious mind. You always slip back onto those tracks if you're not constantly digging new ones, just constantly, every day. 
got it. As Tom Waits says, you got to get behind the mule in the morning and plow. You just got to every day, you got to do that. Because otherwise, you'll you'll hang out for a while and then you'll slip back into that track. And, and maybe that's, anxi- that's anxiety biding its time. It's just that it's always there. The old, the old ways of being, the old, the old mind, um, habits of mind are always lying in wait. You mentioned just now that the ability to, to manage your anxiety to the extent that you can has, among other things, it's enabled you to love the way that you deserve mm-hmm. to love. And that is an important part of particularly the second half of Monkey Mind, it seems like. Addressing the effects that you, you know, your anxiety at its severest had on the first go around um, in your relationship with the woman who became your wife. Yes, that's, that's exactly right, which is that we met around the time that I was writing that article. And when the anxiety exploded into my life again, it, it took her down too took the relationship down. Anxiety infects everything else in your mind or can infect everything else in your mind so that doubts about, say, your work can very quickly become doubts about the person uh, with whom you're living. Maybe if I wasn't living with this person, I wouldn't be feeling so miserable. Maybe if this person wasn't this way, I would feel better. Maybe there's someone else with whom I'd be more comfortable. What I had to learn how to do was kind of create a firewall in my head so that the anxious thoughts I have don't infect my, my feelings toward the woman whom I've chosen to love and continue to choose to love. It's very hard when you're very, when you're very anxious. And the more I think about the book, the more I, the, you know, the more distance I get from the book, the more I think that this is the essential, the essential thing, is that it's, it's radically solipsistic. You're in your own head. You can't get out of your own head. You're, it's, you're locked into your own mind. As I say, like that guy in the diving bell and the butterfly, you can't see past your own nose. And if you can't see past your own nose, you can't love another human being. And if there's any good reason to, to mitigate one's own anxiety, it's that. And for those times when you do need to vent, you you now have essentially sort of like an anxiety buddy that you can call that friend that you write. Oh, my friend Kate. Yes, yes, (laughs) the very lovely Kate Bolick, the the journalist Kate Bolick. Yeah, I call I'll call Kate or I'll call other friends and I'll vent. But I actually try to do that a lot less now. It's like taking a drink. You know, it's it makes you feel better, but it's but it's it's always going to wear off, and it's not it's not the work that actually helps. And it gives you the illusion of things getting better. You're a little, you're a little buzz. You're a little drunk. You're like, oh, I'm, I'm not an anxious guy. I'm totally cool. I can go into that party and be happy. But then it wears off. You're just the same person again. Calling friends and venting is fun, and yet I, it's time that could be better spent working on those thoughts and also, you know, listening to your friends <laughs> as opposed to venting. Because it's even when you're doing that, you're not really out of your own head. You're desperate. It's an act of desperation. Please help me, help me. And it doesn't last, in my experience. Now, you had mentioned that writing about, you know, your adolescent anxiety and, and your, your college years anxiety, that revisiting those memories was, you know, it was the writing part that was stressful, not the act of revisiting yeah. those memories. In writing about your family, the art of, like, I guess, going back to your family and and discussing the fact that you're going to be writing about this this period of, of your life and 
and in their lives too. How did that go? That was a little stressful. I mean, I tried to ignore it while I was writing because I figured you write what you need to write and then, you know, you figure it out later. There are some people who, um, I just did an event with a, another memoirist who wrote a lot about her family and she didn't ask permission afterwards or sort of vet the manuscript with some of those people, which is fine. That's her way of working. I gave the manuscript to my mother, who, who plays such a significant role in the book and whose life story kind of um, is divulged almost as much as mine, and said, you tell me. It's a book. I mean, it's, it's, I, mean I, I believe in it, and it's important for me, and I work very hard on it, but you're my mother, and you're a human being made of flesh and blood and, 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 and brain matter and emotions and feelings and thoughts. You're more important. It was it was a little hard because she. It's painful for anyone to be a subject in a book because you're you're not a you you have to relinquish all control, and she was upset a little bit, but upset not so much of the content I think because of the shock of being a character. And she of course but she's a sophisticated woman and she knows that it's not you know it's not just it's not all of her, and that it's only my view of her, and she thought about it. And she said, "This fact is a little incorrect. This fact is a little incorrect. But the rest of it." your choice everything everyone else didn't mind my wife didn't mind my brothers didn't mind and i showed it to friends no one really minded my, my mother because she's so pro, 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 so prominent in there but yeah she she gave me permission having been through the experience now of you know writing the book and uh dealing with all the anxieties of publication and yeah. things like this as a writer is this something that you're like, okay, I've done this now. I can, you know, I can, I can keep doing this. Keep doing. Keep writing books. Oh, writing. yeah. I mean, this is the second, this is my second book. And okay. um, you're asking, is it, is it like, did it banish some doubts to have it come mm -hmm. out? Mm -hmm. <sighs> or even not so much the banishing of doubts, but now that it's like, you know, I'm sure that the first time around that there were those, so those sorts of doubts but now that it now that you now that you've done it twice, yeah, I mean you you clearly have internalized that it's a survivable process. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I mean, the first book got some really nice attention from reviewers and from media, and sold about four copies. So there is a bit of of gratitude and kindness that comes along, uh, and and rather and 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 uh, comfort that comes along with people actually buying this book. Do I feel like I can survive the process? Yes. I feel like I know the process better. I feel like I, I know what it means to have to, to, to write a book. But I have no real delusions. Well, I have some delusions, otherwise I wouldn't do it again. But I have no real uh, delusions about the fact that it's going to be easier the next time. I know that the next book is going to pose its own horrible and seemingly intractable, intractable problems. And, and I'm going to dive in and I'll suffer from those. But yeah, I feel I, yeah, I'm not really sure. I mean, and I also have no delusions that the next one, you know, people will read the next one. You just never know. There's that. I don't know if you watched the show Louis at all. A little bit. Where he's got, uh, where he meets with Joan Rivers, and he's upset because he's in the little room and she's in the big room playing at, at at some casino. And she goes, "Sweetheart, I was playing in the little room last week. You know, last year. Next year, I might be playing in the little room, and you'll be in the big room. You just don't know. You just gotta, you know, it's like the thoughts. You just gotta put one foot in front of the other." To coin a cliche. Yeah, I was going to say that actually sounds like 
that in the meantime that you're pretty you know the techniques are at least allowing you to get through like you know whether it's one foot in front of the other or one day at a time or however you want to phrase it that it's like they really do seem to be uh to helping you out yeah and i don't care if they're cliches man it's it's true it's like you know it's about not it's about narrowing the cone of your attention to what you're dealing with at any one moment i mean i go right now i'm talking about this book a lot and i'm and i'm spending a lot of time on my email and and I'd love to be writing the next book. And I have in my head, I've already started, but I can't. I'd love to be doing that. But right now, it's important to concentrate on that it's it's pleasing to be here talking to you at this very moment. Does that sound like the advice that, you know, a thousand self-help people give? Well, it's because it's true, probably. So that's, you know, I'll adhere to it, man. Yeah. Well, it's been really great, uh, great fun talking with you. Likewise. Last hour as well. I'm Ron Hogan. I've been talking with Daniel Smith about his memoir, Monkey Mind, published by Simon & Schuster. And you have been listening to Life Stories. Please join us again for another Life Stories conversation soon. Thanks. <laughs>